You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. You can be seated. Good to see all of you all today. We are in a series called The Ark of Redemption. And we're discovering how God loves to communicate with his people and loves to rescue his people and will keep his people as well. We have seen all throughout scripture that God is pursuing his people in this, this arc of redemption. And today we're going to move to the prophets. We have been in the garden. We have been in Noah's ark. We have been with Abraham and the covenant there. We've been with Moses and the law. Last week we saw the covenant that God made through the kings, David and Solomon. So today we begin to see how God used prophets to speak to his people, to move God's people along on this ark of of redemption. Prophets were raised up to speak to the kings. They were raised up to speak to the people of God. And in case you think it's just ancient, old, unusable news, what God said to the prophets and what the prophets say said to God's people are still good things for us to hear today. We need to hear the words of the prophets as we continue to walk with the Lord ourselves. Let me give you this kind of little, if you're, if you're a note taker especially, and I know a lot of you, I've gotten a lot of emails the past several weeks of this being new things for you, like a, a new way to see God's word in this, in this arc of redemption. So if this is kind of new to you or maybe new to God's word, maybe you're a new believer, let me just let you know what the prophets were about. God spoke his word and his warnings through the prophets. God had a word for his people so often in the Old Testament it was a warning to his people or a warning to those who were not his people. And God spoke through his, his prophets. So maybe an easier way to say that is God's heart spoken through human voice. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the voices of the prophets. There's some things that they had in common. Uh, their words or their messages were often countercultural. They cut against the grain of the culture. They cut against the grain of, of what people were saying, what they were doing. Their words were often very striking and, and very demanding of God's people. The prophets, you might could say, were on the wrong side of history, but on the right side of God. They, they always spoke out against what was happening. They spoke for justice. They spoke a very corrective word. They were very recalibrating words. And again, so often they were words of warning to the people of God. Um, let me just also say, in the most lovingly way I can say this, uh, they were obnoxious. They were, they were rather obnoxious in their persistence. They were rather obnoxious in, in, in the weightiness of their words. If you can imagine with me for just a second, you're, you're driving down Valley Mills toward the lake. And so, you know, Waco Drive and the rest of Valley Mills are in your rearview mirror. And you're about to head down to Lakeshore Drive that takes that beautiful kind of dip down by the lake. And they're at the top of, of Lakeshore Drive, right where Valley Mills and Lakeshore Drive meet. When I was growing up, that was the old Lake Hill food stories to go there and, and buy bubble gum when I was a kid. But that has nothing to do with prophecy whatsoever. And so here's, here's, here's a, a person at the top of that hill, and they're, they're yelling at you as you're, as you're driving down. And they're kind of waving and, and jumping frantically. I mean, if you saw them and they're maybe dressed in some odd clothing, you would think, well, think how, how obnoxious is that? There's a person standing in the middle of Valley Mills, and they're jumping up and down, and they're yelling at me. Well, they're not obnoxious if Lakeshore Drive has fallen into Lake Waco. And they're trying to stop you, prevent you from going down that road because it'd be a road straight to destruction. That's, that's exactly the picture of the prophets. They, they often jumped up and down 
and, and waved their hands, if you will, frantically. And actually, some of them did dress in very odd clothing. They're trying to get the warning of, of kings and the warning of nations, the warning of people to not go down this road. It's a road that leads to destruction. One of the main prophets, and actually, you could probably argue that the very first prophet uh, was actually Moses. Moses was speaking to God's people on behalf of God. Moses would speak to God on behalf of God's people. And we see this in the book of Exodus. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. But it's Exodus chapter 20. It's really kind of the first clear picture we see of, of a prophet. Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 18, verse 18 through 21. So if you want to turn there, you can. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. The main prophet, the first main prophet of, of Israel was actually Moses. So here we are. The context is uh, Moses has just come down off the mountain uh, with the Ten Commandments. And so we, we pick it up there. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, so we're in Exodus twenty eighteen. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were rightfully afraid. They trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. So here's even a kind of a, a word of warning that you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. That is the reason that that God is having this mountain shaking right now. But verse 21 gives a clear picture again of a prophet. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So again, Moses was going to speak to God on behalf of the people. He was going to speak to the people on behalf of God. He was, if you will, kind of the the, the mediator between God and and the people of God. That's, That's a picture of of a prophet. Now, what was God supposed to do? Was he supposed to, there are 600,000 families. I mean, how is God going to speak to those 600,000 people? He's going to call the heads of the households of all 600,000 families here as they have left Exodus? No. Are they Exodus out of, out of Egypt? No. What God does is he speaks to one person, and then that one person speaks to the people of God. That's going to be the pattern really all throughout the Old Testament. This is how God is going to speak to his people through, through prophets. The bulk of the Old Testament, really, when God is speaking, he is speaking to one person, and that person will turn around and speak to the people of God. That is a, a classic definition of, of a prophet. So the prophet we're going to look at today, who kind of serves as a standard bearer, at least kind of in this portion of the Old Testament, of all the prophets, is the prophet Elijah. And so if you did make it to Exodus a few moments ago, you'll go nine books to the right, to the book of First Kings. If you didn't make it to Exodus, it's the 11th book in the Old Testament. And we're going to go to chapter 16 together. First Kings chapter 16. And while we turn there, let me just say how grateful I am for this nation. And we ask God's blessings on the USA. We ask for God's mercy on our nation. And tonight we're going to celebrate. Tonight we're going to pray for our nation. Tonight we're going to enjoy bluegrass music and bluebell ice cream and, and a ton of fun and a celebration of the 245th birthday of the United States of America. And I hope to see you there this evening. We're in 1 Kings chapter 16. Let me give you a little runway, if you will, or run up to, uh, to Elijah kind of coming onto the scene. So let's pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, kind of the end of that chapter. 1 Kings 16, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah. So the kingdom wasn't united very long. Um, you have David, then you have Solomon, and then by the time you get to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the, the nation has now divided into a northern nation, a southern nation, the nation of Judah, the nation of, of, of Israel. So in the 38th year of Asa, who's the king of Judah, 
Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So you have Asa in Judah, you have Ahab in Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel there in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And a funny little Hebraic expression here, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the, the son of Nebat. In other words, if you think that was bad, if you thought Jeroboam was bad, here's someone who's actually walking in, in the sins of Jeroboam. And he took for his wife Jezebel, probably a familiar name to you, probably no one here today is named Jezebel, the king of the wife of Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, who was the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and, and worshipped him. And there he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is a whole nother story of, of, of idolatry and, 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 and lustfulness and, and the celebration of the flesh. And, and Ahab did, how about this statement? Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, just, just that's a pretty big statement. Ahab was worse than the six kings of Israel before him. And let me just go on record by telling you, they weren't Boy Scouts. The six before were pretty, pretty bad guys also. They were pretty evil. They, there's, they, they were killers of their own family. They were idolaters. There was even an, an arsonist there in, in that list of six. But they were all cultic worshipers of, of false gods. And here comes this new king, and he is, he is so evil that really it says here that God was more angry at him than all the other kings before him. So we'll pick it up here in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. And this is a picture of a prophet. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, so here's the evil king, so here's the prophet coming to the king who's done all these evil things, and here's what the prophet says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, meaning Elijah, and told Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat and Chick-fil-A in the morning and bread and meat and Chick-fil-A in the evening. And he drank from, from the brook because that's what God delivers, of course. Unless it's on a Sunday, then you have to go to Cain's. But here we see that he was delivering, delivering the, the food and the drink to, uh, to Elijah. Now, let me just begin to give you a picture of the prophets. If you're a note taker, I want you to see three things about the prophets, which is almost true of every single prophet in the Old Testament. Here's the first one, that they walked in God's presence. Several times, the prophets would hear the word of the Lord come to them, and very often it was a word to pass on to others, but also almost as often was a personal word to them, the, the prophets, they had to walk in the presence of God. And several times in the lives of the prophets, Elijah here, Elisha later on, Jeremiah later on, Daniel later on, God is going to isolate them often, bring them to a quiet place, bring them to a place where he can minister to them, he can give them the tough word they're about to share. And it was the most vital part of a prophet's life to be still in the presence of God, to develop that personal relationship with God, to learn to trust God, because everything would flow from that. Here's, here's a practical word for you under point number one. The most important time in their lives was when they were alone with God. And God often called them to a lonely place. 
Call them to a place of quietness. Call them to a place of isolation. That's why often you see Jeremiah weeping. Uh, this is why Elijah, we're going to see later on, just felt so lonely, felt so alone because God would often pull his people, pull his prophets to a time of, of really consecration and they would find themselves alone a lot because their messages they were about to deliver were very unpopular. That's why the prophets became unpopular themselves. It was a very unpopular message and so they need to spend time alone with God for them to find that strength, which really kind of leads to the second point. They found strength in solitude with God. That's where they found their strength. It reminds me of Isaiah uh, chapter 30, verse 15. In our stillness, in our quietness, we will find God's strength. And here we see the prophet uh, in solitude with God. So what is God doing here in, in chapter 17? God is shaping Elijah. God is reminding Elijah of God's faithfulness, of God's care, of God's provision. And so God is shaping Elijah here in this solitude because Elijah is about to have to go back to that terrifying king. The one who provoked God to anger more than the other six kings before him. Now, I know these past several weeks, maybe it has felt like some, for some of you that we've been sitting in a seminary class and going through you know, systematic theology and this big story of the Bible. And so if you come to church or you're watching online and all you really wanted today was like, just give me three points, pastor, and get me out of here. Three points that I can really kind of lean on for tomorrow morning. I'm about to satisfy those who are here just for three practical points. Here it is. Three points for you to hold on to. You can build your lives on these three things we just looked at. Number one, you and I can also walk in God's presence, which is a good thing. We want to walk in the presence of God. Here's a second practical thing. The most important time in your life is when you're alone with God. More than any other moment of your life, any other 30-minute window, any other one-hour window, the most important time in your life is when you are alone with God. And here's a third practical thing. Strength for this crazy thing we call life can be found when you have solitude with God. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says that Jesus went to a lonely place and met with the Father and prayed. In fact, he even said, well, it was still early in the morning. I've often thought if Jesus needed that time of solitude with the Father, how much more do I need? How much more do you need that solitude time with the Father? So for those of y'all who just wanted three practical points, you can go to rest now for a while. We'll wake you up when we get done with the rest of this. Number two, here's what we see about, about the prophets. They were fixed to the word of the Lord. They built their life upon the word of the Lord. They adhered to the word of the Lord. A prophet would not be a prophet if he remained silent. He was constantly hearing God's word and delivering God's word. Everything in their lives revolved around them hearing the word of the Lord and declaring the word of the Lord. I just want you to see that very quickly here. And in chapter 17, we saw it already in verse 2, if your Bible's still open, and the word of the Lord came to him. Jump down to, to verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. In verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah. In fact, this word here is that Elijah was going to go and, and stay at the home of a widow there at Zarephath. That, that widow would have a, a son and God would take care of Elijah through, uh, not just through that widow, but also through God's supply with that widow's home. Look at verse 14 of chapter 17. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, that jar of flour shall not be spent and that jug of oil shall not run empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Verse 16, so that jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by. Elijah. So that widow's son dies. 
Elijah, by the word of the Lord, raises that son back to life. And we see how that ends in chapter 17, verse 24, the last verse of chapter 17. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So the prophets were always guided by the word of God. And and, and so should our lives be guided by the word of the Lord. They were so dependent upon the word of the Lord. We constantly see in the mouths of the prophets this phrase, thus saith the Lord. You know why the prophets were so dependent upon the word of God? Because they're about to go marching into the throne room of an egotistical, maniacal king. And you better be dependent upon the word of the Lord and not your own word. So they were, they were trusting that God's word would have power, God's word would have sway, God's word would have authority and influence, and so are we. We are dependent upon the authority of God's word. It is through God's word that we find freedom, that we find life, that we understand who God is. We are so dependent upon the word of the Lord. This is why Paul said to the church at Philippi, you shine like stars in the universe when you hold out the word of truth. They were fixed on the word of the Lord. So 1 Kings chapter 18, just one chapter over. Jump down to verse 17 with me. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Elijah's going to have to go back to Ahab. Going to have that conversation with Ahab again. I love this verse. 1 Kings 18, 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? So... Prophets, they made good trouble all the time. Like they, 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 they were known for making problems for idolaters in, in Israel. In verse 18, look at the courage here of Elijah. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And now he's going to talk about his daddy. And your father's house has as well. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. That, this is an excellent picture of a, of a prophet speaking boldly to the king, an evil king at that, verse 19. Here comes the challenge. Now, therefore, Elijah's still talking. You send and gather all of Israel to me. In other words, I want an audience. And let's gather at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So what he is doing, he is calling out for a duel. And he wants everyone to see it, everyone watching. And you know this story probably. I love this story, so let's read it. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and they gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people. Again, he wanted everyone to see who was the Lord. And he said, how long, speaking to the people, will you go limping between two different opinions? The word limping right there is also the Hebrew word for jumping. It's probably the term that we would use for you can't decide which side of the fence you're going to be on. You're just kind of jumping back and forth between these two different opinions. You're limping back and forth between these two different opinions. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if it's Baal, then follow him. In other words, stop jumping back and forth. Just choose a side. And the people did not answer him. They didn't answer him a word. They're still limping. They're still jumping. Then Elijah said to the people, I If I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, which is Hebrew for game on. I want to see this happen. 
Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped, that same word for jumped around the altar that had been made. And at noon, here comes some Old Testament trash talking, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or he's relieving himself. That is exactly what you think that is. Which is why after looking for Jesus, when I get to heaven, I am going to run for Elijah and give him a high five for this one. Because he is saying right here, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe your God is behind a tree. Your God is maybe relieving himself somewhere. I don't, I don't write this stuff. I just preach it. Maybe, you're, maybe your God is, 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 is in the bathroom. Maybe he's on the can. I'm not really sure where he is. The first word out there, either he's musing, is the same word for maybe he's just talking to himself. It's the same Hebrew word for daydreaming. Maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. I love the trash talking of Elijah. Verse 28, and they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Praying with passion is useless. What matters is the one who hears the prayer. I mean, here, here's a group of people, and let me just say this very clearly. They were religious people. They were praying with their own power. They were praying with great passion. They were praying with great volume. And I want to make sure you saw this at the end of verse 29. And no one answered. No one paid attention. Praying with power and passion is useless. What matters is the one who hears our prayer. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. That's the third time he has said that, by the way. I want to make sure everyone understands this. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord, there it is again, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar as great as he as would contain two seahs, which is about three and a half gallons of, of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, which is just an offering time, sacrifice time, Elijah the prophet came near. Listen to his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, here's evangelism, here's the gospel being shared, the good news, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
It's repentance. He is calling the people to repentance. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God-sized risk, God-sized reward. Elijah stepped out in faith. God stepped in as God. I love that Elijah, even with his, if you will, crass trash-talking earlier, still longs for the repentance of his nation. That's a good word for July 4th. Let us long for the repentance of our nation. May their hearts turn back to you. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, to all the, the Israelites who have just worshipped with their faces on the ground, declaring that God, he is the Lord, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, which is still there today, and slaughtered them there. Bad day to be a prophet for Baal. Verse 41, and Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. I could, I could preach a sermon off of that one scripture because there was no rain at that point. But Elijah in faith is already knowing that the word of the Lord has come to him and given him the word. The rain is going to come. And so Elijah, it's so real to Elijah that he already hears the sound of the rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down. Look at this picture of worship. Here, here's the prophet who just won the prophet who just won the duel, but look at his posture. Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth. That literally means he put his face in the dust and he put his face also between his knees. And he said to his servant, Elijah said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And by the way, you can stand on the Mount, of Mount Carmel today and look over your right shoulder and see the Mediterranean Sea. So he is talking about the Mediterranean right over his shoulder. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. Remember, Elijah's already heard the rain in his mind and in his faith. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, then go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. It has not even rained yet. Elijah's already heard the rain. Elijah, even though he has given warning to this king, is trying to bless this king by saying there's going to be some rain coming. So you get inside of your chariot and going back down to your palace, going back down to your place, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a great rain. And Ahab rode in a chariot and went down to Jezreel, which is the valley below him. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. So I love this. Elijah gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Make sure you heard this picture correctly. Understand this correctly. Ahab, the king, is in a chariot. Elijah just pulled up his garment and he's running. I got this great image of Elijah Gump, right? A Forrest Gump's great-great-grandfather just running as fast as he can and by the power of the Lord passes, runs ahead of Ahab who is in a chariot led by horses. Here's what I want you to write down in your notes. They, meaning the prophets, they longed for God's glory. They wanted to see God victorious. They 
Elijah loved, certainly loved when Israel began to chant, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But I want you to catch this. They also had to lean on God's grace. They longed for the glory of God. They wanted to see God as victor. They wanted to see God as the king over their nation. They desired their nation to return to the Lord. They longed for the glory of God, but they also had to lean on his grace. And you'll see now this leaning of grace. First Kings 19, let's just keep reading verse 1. So Ahab, remember the evil king, told Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Here's what the message said. So may the gods do to me and more also. If if I do not make your life as the life as one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I will kill myself or have someone kill me unless I kill you first, Elijah, by this time tomorrow. Verse 3, fascinating. Then he was afraid. I mean, he had just won the duel, if you will, 450 to 1. He had even called out 850 to come and meet him there at Mount Carmel. And this one woman sends one messenger with one message that I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to the other kingdom, which belongs to Judah. He even left his servant there, but he himself, Elijah, he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked, how about this? And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a, and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the, that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the mount of God. Verse 9, don't miss it. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, oh man. The word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Can I say it again? These prophets, they longed for the glory of God, but they also all the time consistently had to lean on the grace of God. One day, Elijah so strong in God's power, the very next day, so weak in his own power. Who does this remind me of? You and me. I mean, this is our story right here. One day so strong in the Lord, so confident in his calling and his promises. The very next day, we're trembling and we're, we're afraid. Highland sisters and brothers, aren't you glad that God is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him? And that we run away from him. We run away from his promises. We run away, try to run away from his presence. He just continues to come after us time and time and time again. Surely his goodness and his mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. That is grace. And if you are like me, we long for God's glory. God's glory in in, in this church, God's glory in our lives, God's glory in our marriages, God's glory in our families, God's glory in Waco, God's glory in this nation, God's glory to be known around the world just as water fills the earth that the knowledge of the glory of God might be known by all. 
But we also have to lean on his grace every day. The same people who long for his glory are the exact same people who have to lean daily on his grace. So how does this fit into this arc of redemption? Look at that list one more time. I think it's on the screen behind me. The prophets in the Old Testament, they walked in God's presence. They, they were fixed to, to the word of the Lord. They based their lives on the word of the Lord. They longed for God's glory, but they also leaned daily all the time on God's grace. How does that fit into this arc of redemption where God communicates with us as his people? God saves us. God God keeps us. Well, I think this is how it fits because we can line the prophets of the Old Testament and line them up and put them on top of, or actually put Jesus on top of them because we see Jesus is the greatest prophet. I'll be careful when I say that because I know our Muslim friends would say, well, yeah, Jesus is, is, a, is a prophet. But I'm saying here that Jesus is the greatest prophet. He is not one among many. He is unique over all. He speaks to God on our behalf. He speaks to us on behalf of God. Jesus is the greatest prophet. The prophets, the Old Testament, look, they walked in God's presence. But Jesus, he is God's presence. Those who longed to be near the Lord in the Old Testament, these prophets, they wanted to be as close to the presence of God that they could. But Jesus, he is the presence of God. Look on the screen, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the presence of God. So I'll give you the other point here, the most important thing in your life then is your relationship with Jesus. The most important thing in your life is your relationship, how you relate to God through Christ, or maybe how you do not relate to God through Christ. It's the most important thing. There is nothing more important, nothing more important in your life now, nothing more important in your life tomorrow, nothing more important in your life in 2022, and nothing more important in a billion years from now than your relationship with Jesus. He is worth your life. He is worth your time. He is worth your heart. He is worth your spending. He is worth your all. He is worthy of all because he is all. I'll give you that little second sub point. Time in solitude with Jesus, that's your strength. That's why tomorrow you better guard that time with Jesus. Carve out that time and say no to every other thing because time and solitude with Jesus, that is your strength. This is eternal life. Jesus said this, that we may know God and know his son. This is eternal life. It's not about heaven and streets of gold. Eternal life is about knowing Jesus and enjoying that time with him, time and solitude with Jesus. That, that is your strength. You find strength in his presence. You find strength for today. You find bright hope for tomorrow in the presence of Christ. And everything in your life will flow from this time with Jesus. Time with Jesus is better than time with anybody else or anything else. Time and solitude with Jesus, that is our strength. The prophets, remember, they were fixed to the word of the Lord. But Jesus, he is the living word of the Lord. He is the living word of God. He doesn't speak for God. He speaks as God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus, as the living word, he is the most precise, exact representation of God. He is the most exact person to explain to us who God is, for he is the Lord. The greatest revelation of God is Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect revelation of himself. This is why we see on the screen, John 1, 14, and the word, speaking of Christ, became flesh. There's Christmas, there's Bethlehem. 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. He is the living word of God. And connected to that, thirdly, remember, they long for God's glory. They long for, the, for God's grace. They lean on God's grace. Well, Jesus, he is God's glory. And he is the distributor of the grace of God. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the brilliance of God. He is the radiating light of God. The glory of Jesus weighs the same as the glory of God. And from him we have received this undeserved grace. Christian, in the ark of redemption, it is Christ who has served us salvation. It is Christ who has served us forgiveness. It is Christ who has served us life that will last forever. And when we behold Jesus, we behold the glory of God. This is what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. When you have seen Jesus, the face of Jesus, you have seen the face of God. The face of the glory of God. This is how the prophets and the greatest prophet Jesus fits into the ark of redemption. Oh, God loves his people. And has pulled us aside as his people to save us. And here's good news, to keep us as his people. Would you stand with me, please, and let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for being the greatest prophet, unique over and above all other prophets. Son of God. Jesus, we understand how the the Old Testament prophets, they, they walked in your presence. But Jesus, you are the presence of God. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of the nature of God. Jesus, we understand that in, in, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they were fixed to the word of the Lord. But Jesus, you are the living word of the Lord. You don't speak for God. You are God. And in you, we have seen the glory of God full of grace, full of truth. And God, all of us in this room, we long for your glory. We long to see your name made big in this place. Your name made big in Waco, in our nation, and in all the nations around the world. Jesus, you are the glory of God, and you are the distributor of the grace of God. So today we worship. We worship the King. We see ourselves in this ark of redemption. Jesus, we see you shining brighter than the prophets. You are the better prophet. Father, today maybe there's some in this room, maybe many in this room who have never put their trust, their faith, their life in you. And maybe without judgment, there's many in this room, it's been a long time since they've just spent some solitude time in your presence. And the words of the prophet would be words for us today. Oh, return to the Lord. Oh, come to the Lord, all who are hungry, all who are needy. Father, we thank you that in the Son, Christ, we have seen your glory, your grace, your call to come. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.